Hello and welcome to Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, the psychology and mental health podcast produced by the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology in Kent. My name is John McGowan and I'm a psychologist in the centre. Today I'm joined by the regular gang of Rachel Terry. Hello. And Anne Cook. Hello. It's just the three of us for this one, as some of our other regulars aren't available. However, we wanted to get together to have a discussion of a recent publication, uh, which is likely to be of interest to many listeners. This is called The Power Threat Meaning Framework, and it was published at the beginning of February by the British Psychological Society. And its aim is, to quote the website, to offer a new perspective on why people experience mental distress. So, folks... We're sometimes quite critical of the old perspective on mental distress and thought it would be useful to think about what this is and isn't offering. So Anne, could you tell us more about the PTMF? And that name might be one of the things that we want to pick up on. Yeah. But tell us a little bit more. What's it all about? Okay, well, it's it's really a formalisation of, uh, I guess, what you'd call a psychosocial framework or approach to understanding uh, human despair and distress. Uh, It's designed as an alternative to the traditional medical or diagnostic framework that we often use. And uh, I guess it's kind of like it says on the tin, it is a framework by which we can understand distress in terms of looking at um, the the impact of power on people, and that's in a very, very wide sense. It might be something um, bad that's happened to them or um, how power is operated generally, how power does impact on us in our lives, and how sometimes... That can be very threatening in various ways. And also uh, it's important to think about the way that we make meaning of the things that happen to us. So it's basically inviting us to look at those things in making sense of our own and other people's distress. Hmm. Rachel, that that was a very concise summary. The the, the document itself, it should be pointed out, isn't all that concise. It's 414 pages long which was I have to guiltily confess my first thought when the trainees here asked to discuss it uh, <laughs> the other day but I have read quite a bit of it now and it seems to me it's broken down into two broad areas one is this idea the power threat meaning framework itself which just reading a, a little bit from it is this idea of it's framed really around a kind of series of very broad questions about how is power operated in your life, what kind of threats does this pose, what's the meaning, the threat response that you're using, something about resources and how all this fits together into a story. I, I get that bit. And then there's another bit which is where it seems to get into the territory of what we normally call psychiatric diagnosis, the the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, things like that, where it's got these kind of general patterns. So what, what do we think of it, Rachel? I really, really liked the first section where it's talking about how to think about um, power imbalances in people's life and the threats. But I found the second section where they have tried to sort of put some categories together a bit more challenging and hard to engage with. So... For me, that section was perhaps less helpful at this stage, but they do very much acknowledge that it's in an early stage of development. For me, that section was a bit problematic in that it tries to do perhaps one of the things that we dislike from medical diagnosis, which is kind of clump people into into groups, and that isn't always the most helpful uh, because people's experiences are often very, very different. So I didn't like that middle section about general patterns that much. 
what's wrong with being clumped into groups? Well, I guess it's it's how you do the clumping, because <laughs> um, in a way, the clumping, I, I think one of the um, criticisms of those of us who have ourselves been critical of the, the diagnostic approaches being that you do need ways of talking about different groups of people for various uh, purposes mm-hmm. uh, but that doesn't you know the traditional way we've done that is by saying these are the different diagnosing with people with different illnesses mm-hmm. and I guess this is attempting to be a psychological alternative but that doesn't mean to say that you're lumping people into groups and assuming that everybody is the same within those groups. Well, that's sometimes been a criticism of more psychiatric diagnosis, I guess, is that the clumping people together and then deciding your treatment based on the clumping or the grouping rather than on a more kind of individual understanding of the person in front of you, you know, whether that's always a fair criticism or not of how various people, psychologists and in fact and psychiatrists use that as a is another question. I, I suppose I'm thinking about this in two ways. One is the actual utility of the document itself and the two sections maybe we could break down separately. I suppose the other thing is the language and you know not least the 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 title i mean god what about that title and this is thinking about this as being something that could have some kind of public impact and it's not exactly snappy is it yes and when you when you refer to the title people often say what What, what's that about so i think that is a problem but we are talking about very complex ideas so you know would be very challenging to come up with a very snappy title for what is a very complex area Mm. I suppose I, I was thinking about that and I was thinking a couple of years ago I shared a, a platform with Paul Farmer of Mind. Now, he, he seems to me to have taken Mind in a particular direction, which I think is quite pro-illness um, classification. And he seems to me also to have been quite an influential person on the way that we think about mental health and the way that we think about distress. I don't really agree with everything he says, but God, I know what he's about. You know, uh, quite core, clear messages time to talk, one in four people has a mental health problem, these kinds of messages. Now, I, I, one of the things that worries me about those messages is that they do, of course, gloss complexity, but surely in the face of that, you need something that's a, you know, perhaps more of a cogent campaigning message. I mean, what, what might that be coming yeah. out of this? Because I don't well, think the title is it. Well, I quite like the way that, uh, I think it's John Reed that says... That one of the he, authors, yeah. Well, he is, in fact, one of the authors, but one of the things he said in the past is... Uh, shit happens and it drives us crazy and I think in a way that is the basic message of the document it's inviting us to look at the things that happen in people's lives as largely responsible for our distress and despair I don't think anybody's claiming that's the only reason and I think that that's been one criticism of the document that it's uh, kind of saying taking away one one size fits all explanation i.e you know all distress is due to our brains and replacing it with another one all distress is due to power and I don't think anybody's at least I'm not aware that anybody's putting this forward as a one size fits all solution it's something that people can use I mean having read it myself I don't think that it does say that mental distress is all caused by power imbalances but I think it's saying we need to pay more attention to that than we currently do which I massively agree with for me it's saying 
there's sort of a few key messages. One is the meanings people are making of what has happened to them in, in their lives is really important and we need to pay more attention to that. Yeah. Also that what we have traditionally called symptoms are actually probably coping strategies or things that have emerged when people haven't had their core psychological needs met. So they may have been adaptive in the past or they may be serving a function yeah. and we need to be thinking more about that. Yeah. Um, and often oppression and wider social factors are relevant and we need to be paying more attention. So for me, they were the key messages. Yeah, absolutely. Well, those words, power, oppression, again, I'm sort of wondering a, a little bit. I mean, in some ways it seems to be that the aspiration of certainly this first section is to, if you're not thinking about particular things in relation to the stress, the ideas to partly prompt you to take you into thinking about those things. Yeah. But when we start having words like power and oppression, I kind of know what they mean, but as somebody, you know, an average punter, just going to think, God, this sounds like it's just kind of dropped down from a cultural studies department in a university or something. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It feels very... It feels like it might be a little bit inaccessible in but that way. Aren't you confusing the set of ideas from the way it's communicated because mm -hmm. I think what we've got here in the long and the short versions is a clear articulation, well a clear, I guess at least to academics um, and hopefully some others, articulation of the ideas, you know, how you then, I mean it's a bit like, you know, would you send somebody off to read the DSM? There's always a, a need for plain English explanations of things and in fact I think I believe there is a two-page summary available mm -hmm. on the internet but you know that's kind of what our blog and our podcast is about mm -hmm. for example. Well maybe that's part of the confusion certainly in my mind approaching it is it uh, a framework document or is it a kind of campaigning document I mean I can understand the DSM no problem actually it's written in pretty simple language actually um, this is the, obviously the main manual of psychiatric classification it's written in fairly straightforward language but I suppose it's the degree to which it's a campaigning document as, as what well. What do you mean by campaigning because surely any proposing any alternative to the status quo could be and you know promulgating that the existence of that alternative could be seen as campaigning I'm not saying there's anything wrong with campaigning I suppose what I'm talking about is campaigning in a way that people can get um, a relatively straightforward core message from it rather than, as Rachel said, say, the what? <laughs> I mean, I've heard that quite a lot, actually, and it doesn't seem to me to be trivial. The mm. what? Mm. I like something between the short summary, which is two pages, and the overview, which is quite lengthy, because I do think a lot of the ideas are really important, and I'd like to share them with colleagues from other professional backgrounds and so on, because I think the ideas are great. A lot of them perhaps aren't new within clinical psychology, but having them in one place yeah. to share with other professionals would be really good, and I wouldn't really want to be sharing the very brief summary or the very lengthy overview as it currently is. So there is a bit of a gap for something in between, I think. Well, thank you for getting me off my, you know, presentational aspects. That's the move on, moving me on to the meat of it, Rachel. Um, so uh, you're, uh, one of my questions, actually, about this was uh, the kind of benefits, was to try and operationalise the benefits. I think particularly initially the kind of, you know, the guided discussion and the core questions. Mm. How do you think you might use that either with somebody that you're seeing clinically or in, or within a clinical team, which you mm -hmm. cited, mm -hmm. Rachel? Well, there is um, in the overview document some appendices, and one of the appendices, the first one, um, gives some guidance on the author's suggestions on how you might use some of the ideas working individually with a service user or with a team. 
I, I think it's just, um, and there's also some quite useful diagrams for reminders of what you might want to consider. I think as a clinical psychologist, it's a useful tool helping us when we're doing our formulations, which is when we're trying to make sense with a person about, about their problems and where they might have come from and what might be keeping them going. I think it provides lots of useful reminders of what to think about when you're working with somebody. So reminding them to talk to you about things that went on in their early life, difficulties they've faced, um, their understandings of how they've come to where they are. Yeah. So I think often, currently, um, the the assumption is that um, there is... Well, I don't know if it's actually an assumption, but it's often the message that people get within services is that... Uh, there is just one way of understanding a phenomenon like you know you have a diagnosis that's what's wrong Mm. with you and this is what's got to happen and I think the very existence of an alternative framework if people knew about it and talked about it say in team meetings Mm. could make a huge difference to discussion because the you know if the the starting point of um, a discussion about somebody's problems is you know there, there might be a number of ways we could understand this what is the what's a useful one that's very very different from you know let's uncover mm. the you know the person's pathology and the problem is once often what can happen is that once someone's given a diagnosis that kind of stops any discussion about well you know what led them to become um, you know distressed in this way sort yeah. of it shuts down stories when absolutely. we should potentially be opening them up absolutely I, th- I hate I can't think what the figures are but a, a large number of people um, are not asked about what's happened in their mm. lives that mm. they think might be linked to their problems when mm. they present to services, mm. despite the fact that we know that huge percent, percentages of people who end up in services have experienced quite severe traumas in life events. Mm. Well, I, I have to say, I mean, I, I'm really I'm being a little bit critical here. Partly. It's your role in life, John. <laughs> <laughs> I do my best. The... I mean, it is the sort of thing that I could imagine using the ideas and thinking with a team. I mean, I hope I would be using a lot of the ideas anyway. Mm. Um, I mean, I I might want to find some slightly different language for communicating, you know, if I was going to sit down and think and talk about power threats and oppression. I'm not sure how that would go um, within a team. But I can see that, you know, it is important I wonder if perhaps there's something that might expand psychologists and psychiatrists and nurses and social workers, which is some of us are thinking about the kind of hard, kind of non-negotiable edges of what people have experienced. But I do wonder if all of the caring professions sometimes tend to think of problems as being something that exists in people's heads Mm -hmm. rather than that there are these really hard edges of sometimes terrible things that have happened to them and actually properly, adequately acknowledging the role of those. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's... I was just having this discussion over lunch, actually. I think it's such a shame that you need... You currently need... Often need a label of illness uh, in order to receive help. And this provides, to me, an alternative to that, which is really useful. The person I was talking to had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and actually receiving the diagnosis, she said, was one of the most traumatic things that ever happened to her because of what it meant in her mind and actually to some of the other people that she'd been, you know, other people in her life. So she really, she was saying she really welcomed this as an alternative to that. I mean, she was worried, and this, uh, this has been one um, worry that's been put forward that I can understand about the framework that you know what if the 
neoliberal Tory government who are wanting to cut costs just just take away the the very simplistic ideas that you know they misunderstand it as for example you know mental illness doesn't exist and it might that then be mean that they start questioning people's need for no support more benefits, and, and, and benefits yeah. and I can understand that uh, and I think that's something that we have to be careful about as we think about um, how this framework can be used but on the other hand seeing it you know really you if you can imagine the difference that would be to the way that society and also services operate and understand human distress if we thought about it like this or at least we knew that it was possible to think about it in this framework this psychological framework rather than having to you know as as we do as people do at the moment kind of just think in terms of these rather mysterious illnesses that happen to people sorry Rachel one of the things that I like about this approach is that it's meant to be sort of normalizing and seeing people's problems or distress as understandable given their context and their histories and I really like that about it but I think there's a danger then that it's seen as minimizing people's problems or not yeah. taking them seriously and I think mm-hmm. that that is a worry and I don't think this is trying to do that but it may be perceived in that way yeah well I, I did want to come to the the criticisms in a, in a little minute just because it wasn't totally well uh, received but I suppose some of the things I was thinking about in terms of the discussion of it we seem to be setting psychological thinking up in opposition almost to medical thinking and, and I'm not sure I always buy that. I think sometimes psychological thinking can be equally stuck in your head. Yeah. Really, I don't want to single out cognitive behaviour therapy in this, but I suppose the kind of stereotype about cognitive behaviour therapy is, uh, you know, you've lost your job, you're bereaved, or you just see it differently and you'll be all, you know, you'll be all right. Now, now maybe that's, a, you know, an, un, an unfair stereotype or, or, or not. But we did get something out on our blog site by somebody called Nell Butler, who is a, uh, she is Australian a documentary yeah. maker, and yeah. she talked about a, a very, very harrowing personal experience. And I noticed that the, the example that she gave of it being you know, treated in her said, head wasn't really actually all that medical. It was somebody approaching her in a psychological contact yeah. and failing, really failing, you know, really fundamentally to make a connection um, around you know the realities of what had happened to her, rather than how she kind of felt. About it. One of the things that it says in the power threat meaning frame, which I really liked, was this is going to lead mental health professionals to be thinking, is it the person's threat responses or psychological problems that we should be tackling? Or actually, is it the things that have happened to them that should we be focusing our attentions actually mm-hmm. on um, discrimination, um, you know, tackling mm-hmm. child abuse and so on? So actually, mm-hmm. uh, one of the outcomes, I think, of this framework is that perhaps we're overly focusing our attentions on the wrong things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, as you know, teach the uh, critical psychology element of this programme, and that's one of the key questions that occupies, I guess, critical clinical psychology is, you know, why are psychologists so preoccupied with what goes on inside people's heads? You know, we are equally to blame as, you know, people who only think in terms of brains if we only think in terms of people's thought processes Mm. and not you know the what's happened in that what's happening in their lives and yes indeed the things that happen the way that society is organized that gives rise to so many so much distress Mm. essentially um and you know yeah perhaps we need to take a a more public health approach and Mm. think about you know if the main uh, one of the main risk factors for psychosis say is um 
being abused as a child, then let's not focus all our research monies on uh, medical treatments or even psychological treatments for psychosis. Let's actually bring down the rates more by addressing the things that, that uh, contribute to it in the first place, like child abuse and neglect. And indeed, sometimes people do that. In the previous podcast, um, <clears throat> one of the things I mentioned about, I was talking about um, zealous attempts, at, or what felt to me zealous attempts at suicide prevention, but sometimes good things can come out of those approaches. I'm perfectly prepared to acknowledge that in terms of acknowledging wider social forces rather than simply seeing them all as clinical problems that have a clinical fix, you know, looking at unemployment, inequality, dislocation and gender roles and things like that. Can I just go back to your point about CBT? Because I thought that was really interesting. As someone who has an interest in CBT, I actually thought lots of ideas from cognitive behaviour theory and therapy were in the power threat um, meaning framework. So I thought that they had brought in a lot of those ideas. So, for example, about the importance of meanings and the sense someone is making of a situation, for me, very much is sort of shared by a CBT approach. And also the fact that people sort of... Um, you know, behaviours, if you want to call it that, are often sort of coping strategies that maybe have outlived their usefulness is is very much an idea from CBT too. So I think, you know, some of the ideas are very aligned with CBT. Should you tell that to the authors what they want to know? Or are they more sympathetic than I think to CBT? Yeah, I I don't think they'd have a problem with that at all, Mm -hmm. personally. Well, it sounds like in some ways, certainly the first part of the document, the, the framing uh, discussion, it sounds like we're basically saying that we, whatever translations it may need in terms of language, we're basically saying that we kind of like its ambition and comprehensiveness and yeah. and, and range and that feels very positive. Mm-hmm. Possibly a few more reservations or maybe not so much reservation, but more of a sense of a work in progress with the 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 patterns, you know, the kind of classificatory bit of the bit of the document. I mean, I'd say I felt terribly mixed feelings about that because on one level, they are kind of having a go and people are always asked, well, what's your alternative? So they are coming up with something mm. that's, you know, maybe in a beginning stage to be shot at, mm. you know, but mm. they are putting it up mm. there. Mm, absolutely. There's eight, isn't there, patterns that they've identified. Um, but for me... The problem is they're so sort of broad and general and overlap with each other quite a lot. Um, then so does psychiatric diagnosis. Yeah. Rather like diagnostic <laughs> yeah, categories. Yeah, that's the thing. There's a lot of, lot of the problems with diagnosis as mm. they are currently, I think, are perhaps mirrored mm. a bit with these patterns. One, identities. Two, surviving rejection, entrapment and invalidation. Three, surviving disrupted attachments and adversities as a child and young person. I mean, you can already see that, uh, depending on how you interpret those, there may be potential, at least for overlap. So they, I'm only reading the titles, and they do go into them, and they do go into them in more in more depth in the document. Because another way that they suggest later in the document, sort of, because I do think groupings are, you know actually useful and important in terms of developing services and communicating between professionals. So I think I'm not saying that patterns or groupings aren't helpful, but one of the suggestions later in the power threat meaning framework is around using perhaps problem descriptions like suicidal thoughts or hearing voices or feeling suspicious about others. And I think that might be a more useful way of grouping people rather than these very broad patterns, personally. So in other words, going back to what we could call normal English or or actually probably more relevantly ways that people describe themselves. So I guess phenomenological descriptions. Yeah. 
I mean, this is something that Richard Bentle, psychologist Richard Bentle, I guess, to my mind, has talked about for a number of years mm -hmm. around yeah. what might be classed as psychotic mm -hmm. experiences. Obviously, we have the author of the BPS, Understanding Psychosis Report, in the room. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but the notion of just actually looking at the experience of something like, you know, what might be paranoia or uh, auditory you know auditory hallucinations rather than you know and mm -hmm. actually cutting right across categories of diagnosis mm -hmm. just in thinking about the the individual experience yeah. really and that's one thing that i really welcome about this document is that it does invite us to it creates a framework within which it's possible to describe people's experiences with them in their own mm. words. And so it's, it, it can be, a, I guess, in the jargon, a co-produced explanation or label, which is, seems, feels to me very different from um, how services operate currently, where often explanations and labels feel very imposed and done to the person. So it's very much about doing with rather than doing to. But that does, of course, depend on how it's used. Mm. I mean, I'm quite sure it would be possible to use this in a doing to sort of way rather than doing with as well as the way things are done currently um, a bit like you were saying about Nell and how the you know her experience was described psychologically to her um, in a way that didn't ring true for her but that was just as much as in, in as imposition as as the label the the psychiatric label she was given I mean, that takes me in a bit to something that we've already touched on, which is something about the, the very mixed responses since publication. Because it's, it's clear that the response to this, certainly in the, the cauldron of social media, I was watching it kind of out of the corner of my eye the, the week that it was launched, um, it hasn't been entirely positive. What do, you, what do you make of that? You've said something, Anne, about one of the experiences, you know, the fear that it will be picked up and ultimately used to cut benefits and supports yeah I mean I think that's really been the main one that's been current on social media and I do understand people's concern um, I mean I think in theory we don't have to have a concept of illness in order to provide help for people as a society you know we have for example help for people who are in debt without them having to be diagnosed with debt disorder mm. but in the short term obviously it is a useful you know being able to say I have a diagnosis of X mm. uh, is necessary for some benefits and I mean I think yeah, personally I don't think people need to be as afraid as they are I mean I know that it is true that uh, we do live in a in a very difficult time um, with a very um, a government which is very intent on uh, shall we say cost cutting and I of course I can see that they you know anything can be used uh, in the wrong way but on the other hand I uh, I think sometimes that there might be a fear that that or um, a feeling that overnight services are going to change and that they're going to have a, a kind of uh, a very obvious sort of label above the door mental illness does not exist which is then sort of um, able to be seized on by by the government and I think you know it, I, things aren't going to change very fast this is if if at all going to be used uh, well hopefully it will be but used within services um, and I think but I do think that psychologists and other workers need to be very cognizant of that issue 
in the current political context and that we need to be very clear that we are talking about you know you use different words for communicating with different audiences i think this is a hugely useful tool for individual conversations within service services with with service users but if a you know personally if a benefit form asks for somebody's diagnosis i'm not going to say you know oh i don't believe in diagnosis see powerpet threat meaning framework i'm going to put in that you know, on that in that box whatever by diagnosis they've been given because it is about framing your communication in terms of the audience. And for me perhaps that's one of the slight concerns I have about this document. They say you should use whichever approach the person finds the most helpful Um, but I think there is a sort of a sense of medical diagnoses are wrong, problematic, this is better but I think coming in too critical of the current system makes people perhaps defensive and not as open to the ideas. So I think we need to be a bit careful about that. Yeah, and I think it's also important to not acknowledge, I think, that not all diagnoses are equal. I've had a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. recently with um, uh, certain people who find their diagnosis useful. So, you know, it seems to be that, for example, the diagnosis of obsessive-compulsive disorder Mm -hmm. is experienced as useful by a number of people who are given that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So that might be perhaps at one end of the continuum of utility, perhaps. And then at the other end, you've got diagnoses like schizophrenia, and particularly personality mm. disorder, where a large number of people who are given that diagnosis feel very harmed by, by being diagnosed mm. and labelled in that way. I mean, I wonder if this tension is partly just built into the, the kind of critique that some of us have been you know, involved in, in the sense that you know, medicalizing the medicalizing of everyday life. Yeah. Actually, that does take up resources. It does. You know, how many times do you read if symptoms persist, contact your GP? But if ever if things become rather than sadness, they become depression. All of a sudden, you know, the strain on health services is more and more. Uh, maybe that tension is just built into uh, our thinking at this point. Yeah. Really, yeah. Uh, is the is the framework discouraging people from going to health services or not? Really, I don't know. I suppose it depends on the reason that they're not going to health services in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you're avoiding health services because you found that the way that the, the the approach wasn't helpful because people didn't listen and try and understand, then I guess you'd be more likely to approach a service mm-hmm. if it was run on these principles. Mm-hmm. But I guess mm-hmm. it depends on your reasons. So, do you think that the impact that this has had on social media? Will it spread? Will it spread into the public and health services more broadly? Are we feeling optimistic about that when we've talked about the possibility? It sounds like there might be, after the initial flurry is over, people might start to find utility in it and start to spread it. Well, speaking there. speaking with some of our trainees yesterday, they were saying that in some of the services they're on their placements, some of these ideas are already coming in. So they're already using ideas from the power threat meaning framework to think about the service users, to also think about the dynamics within their own team. So I think some of these ideas are already having an impact that's very, very quick, really. So that leads me to be quite optimistic. Yeah, I mean, I think the... Um, the the extent to which it has been debated has, m- means that it has quite a high profile, mm. and no publicity is bad publicity. <laughs> Perhaps mm. not sure about that. <laughs> I suppose that partly, given what you're saying, Rachel, I'm thinking that partly 
um, one of the roles of something like this might be a bit permission giving, I suppose, in the sense that some of the, it feels to me like some many of these ideas are kind of out there floating around anyway, mm-hmm. and um, you know, a little bit more legitimation of them or permission to use them or think that way does no harm mm-hmm. at all or formal. Yeah, absolutely. Reframing of them it strikes me. I mean, Rachel said this earlier that. In a way, this describes a way that a lot of psychologists have been working yeah. anyway. And yeah, to be able to point to a formalised account of um, how you are understanding um, what we might call mental health problems and how you are trying to intervene can only be useful. Mm. Okay, shall we bring it to a close there? Okay, well, thanks both. We put, we'll put we put links to some of the things mentioned in the podcast on the show page on our blog, uh, so please take a look at that. The best way to follow the podcast is to subscribe. You can do that on iTunes or SoundCloud or really wherever you get your podcast from. I'm working on a listing for Spotify at the moment. Excellent. You can just search for discussions in Tunbridge Wells. We also post all the podcasts on our blog with the supporting references. As well as that, you can follow the department on Twitter and on Facebook at CCCUAPPSY. That's CCCUAPPSY. Uh, we have a number of shows planned for 2018, including one that we've already talked about at the end of last year on the whole label of personality disorder, so keep an eye out for that. But for the moment, thanks for listening, and we'll be, we'll be back soon. Bye.